0: Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee.
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Chris, for reading that. Uh, do keep your Bibles open as, uh, as we think about this, uh, this famous passage on Palm Sunday. Let's just have a quick pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to understand it, but not just to understand it, but to be applying it to our lives today. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you have said about King Jesus. Amen. Um, I want to start with a question this morning. I wonder if you had a important visitor come to to stay with you, maybe phone you up. Maybe it was uh, someone important to you, maybe a family member who you haven't seen in years and years, how might you prepare for that person? In particular, what are the kind of actions you're going to be doing and what are the kind of things and and words that you're going to be saying? Perhaps the the actions you might be um, frantically tidying up the house and make sure everything, or or certainly the rooms they're going to see, are all nice and tidy and clean and polished. Make sure you've got enough food in the fridge and the freezer for when they read that and make sure the laundry's nice and clean on the bed, you know, there's nothing better getting into a nice clean bed and the laundry is all fresh. So what kind of actions are you going to be doing? But at the same time, what kind of words are you going to be using to talk about this expected arrival? Perhaps words about, excited, I just can't wait until they come. Perhaps your words perhaps are more nervous. You're not quite sure what to do next or how to get things ready. There's all sorts of things we think about when we prepare for someone important arriving. And that's the kind of thing that we're seeing in this passage today. We're thinking about people's words and people's actions as they're preparing for a very special guest. And you see, this is important not just to be thinking about how they were preparing for this special guest 2,000 years ago, but also how we prepare for that very same person today and when he comes again. So we're going to be asking three passages of a question of this passage this morning. We're going to be thinking about who this person is that is coming, this king that is coming, who he is, what he is going to be doing, this king that has come, and why we need to pay attention to it, because the king will come again. Let's first ask then, who is this king that is coming? Well, if we look down in the passages and on the screen, we see the kind of king that is coming. Look at verses 1 to 3. As they approached Jerusalem, this is Jesus and his disciples. They came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her, colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. So we've arrived at kind of a crucial point in Jesus's ministry. He's been moving around the country of Israel, particularly in Galilee in the north. His, his ministry has involved healing. It's involved preaching about God's coming kingdom. And now we approach his final week as Jesus heads towards the cross. And so we get this, this royal, kingly arrival to Jerusalem. Now, there were, there were, it was typical for, for a king of the time to, to come in in this majestic way as he approached the city. And there are similarities that we see with King Jesus. He is preparing a very public arrival. This is the kind of king that is coming. There is this public arrival. But you notice there's something very unusual about it. This king is arriving not on a magnificent war horse, but on a donkey and on a colt, a a baby donkey. You see, this entrance entrance tells us about the kind of king that Jesus is. Jesus is is making a very public appearance. And that is right. As one writer put, it was not fitting that the Lamb of God should come to be slain, privately and silently what jesus was going to do was a very public thing and rightly so but he's also arriving on a donkey not on a magnificent warhorse a, a donkey a beast of burden something that you would find in the farmyard pulling things this is a very different arrival for this king But Jesus, in this moment, is displaying perfect knowledge. Do you see that? He is working all these things together for his arrival. He knows what the disciples will find when they go to find this donkey and its colt. And he's working these things all together. It's a little bit like preparing for a wedding day. The date may be months or perhaps even a year off. And you've got all sorts of things that need to be done to prepare for that day. And so it is with Jesus preparing for his grand entrance into Jerusalem for this final week leading up to the cross. Leading up to this, he has been healing. He has been teaching like no other. There was no one who is teaching like Jesus. He'd been casting out demons, even raising the dead. But look how he's responding. It would be so easy to, to take all of this and, and take the shortcut to fame. But he's not doing that, is he? He's not bragging. He turns up on a donkey with its colt. You see, Jesus models to us this amazing, perfect humility. Even though Jesus has done incredible things. I don't know about you, but it's not always that easy to stay humble, is it, when you achieve something great? perhaps some some good grades at college or university. Perhaps you've done really well at work or you've achieved some great sports goal. It's not easy to stay humble in those moments. But yet Jesus is showing this perfect humility despite the great things that he has done because that is the kind of king that he is. That is the kind of king that is coming to his people. And this king commands that his followers actually follow in his footsteps. Just back in Matthew chapter 20, in verses 25 and 26, he says this to his disciples. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That's the kind of way that Jesus' followers must act. But that's also the kind of way that Jesus shows himself he acts. That is the kind of king that is coming. But we also see that this king has been talked about before. It's not just that Jesus is turning up unannounced. This king has been talked about before. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. Matthew says, as he writes this, he says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And then he gives us a quote. Say to daughter Zion, that is, that is a, a name for God's people, to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, this king has been talked about before. In fact, he was prophesied from over 500 years before this event happened. God promised in his word, in the Bible, to send his people a king. And we've seen what kind of king he is as well. He is gentle. He is humble. You see, Jesus isn't some kind of opportunist, as if he's kind of manipulating the the situation for his own ends and his advantage. And it would have been easy for him to do that. Think about the time that this was happening. This was approaching Passover, one of the great festivals for God's people. And it was a celebration of how God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. And you can imagine at this time, emotions were high. There were lots of people coming to the city. And it would have been very easy for Jesus to to capitalize on that, that feeling. And take the shortcut to glory without the cross. If you remember the temptations that that Jesus faced when the devil came to him, one of the temptations was to shortcut that route to glory instead of going to the cross. But no, Jesus instead takes the route that his father has planned. The one that fulfills prophecy, not coming in on a war horse and and whipping the crowd up into a frenzy to, to take over against the Romans but rather the route that his father had planned, through the cross. You see, Jesus is fulfilling hundreds of years of expectation by God's people. God's people waiting for this promised king, this promised deliverer. But actually, the kind of king that God's people wanted was far smaller than the kind of king that God had in mind. Jerusalem was under the control of the Romans. They were not free agents. The Roman army were there, and they were very visibly there. You could turn a street corner and see a, the soldier. This control that they were under must have begged them to, to, to fill liberation. Liberation to try and remember what that felt like when God's people were free. And that's the kind of king that they wanted, someone who could free them from that kind of tyranny. And you see, if someone turns up on a war horse, where it's going to spread all kinds of riot and a a full-on rebellion against the Romans, and that had happened in the past and it had been crushed a terrible blow. But you see, that's not what this king is coming to do. The enemy that this king has come to deal with is much bigger than the Roman Empire. Given a few centuries, a few hundred years, the the Romans would have gone away. But you see, this king came to deal with a bigger enemy. This king came to deal with sin, against rebellion against God. This king came to deal with the punishment for sin. And this king came to deal with death itself. And this king had been talked about, this king had been promised from hundreds of years ago in God's word. So then what does it look like when God's king turns up? Well, we see in verse 6 and 7. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Now, it's this kind of um, thing that that Matthew is picking up, this kind of description that really gives a real ring of truth to what is going on here. This kind of eyewitness testimony of what has happened. The fact that there is a donkey and a colt, so this younger donkey. So that if the colt got a bit scared, the mother, the the parent donkey, was there to keep it calm. Um, I was out walking yesterday uh, along a high street and uh, three people came along riding horses. And in the middle was this young foal who was obviously out with its mother. And there were a few moments when the cars were going along and this, this foal was getting a bit spooked, but it could keep its eye on the mother and it would keep steady. It would just following the mother's footsteps. It's this kind of eyewitness detail that ends a real validity to what we have here in our Bibles. And this is what it looks like when the king turns up. He's not on a war horse, but he arrives, this gentle king, to his city. You see, it's important that we remember that Jesus is this kind of king. He comes on a donkey. He is gentle. This is what he is like. But now that we've seen who this king is, we now need to think about what he has come to do and why he is coming in the first place. Well, there's two things that we see. And to really understand it, we've got to think about this prophecy that's being quoted, and we're going to flesh that out a little bit to see what that tells us about what this coming king is like. You see, we see the king has come. And firstly, we see that the king has come to do battle. Now, we see this, we see in verse 5, it's indented in our Bibles. And it, it, it quotes from um, at least two sources Uh, from Zechariah 9 and from Isaiah 62. And we're just going to zoom in on those two sources from the Old Testament and see what it tells us about what kind of king this is like. So this is Isaiah 62, verse 11, and it says this. It says, The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth, say to daughter Zion, see, your saviour comes. Isaiah's prophecy highlights that this king is coming to do battle As a saviour. Now think about some of the kind of saviours that you see in the Old Testament. We've been looking at Moses, who God used to rescue his people out of slavery. But we think actually, well, Moses wasn't the saviour, was he? God was the saviour. God was the one working through Moses to bring his people out of slavery. Well, what about others? If you read in the book of Judges, you see people like Gideon. And Samson, well, they weren't the saviors. God was the saviour. God was working through them to bring his people into freedom. Or what about King David? Again, a a great man of God. But he wasn't the saviour. God was working through him to bring about prosperity for his people. You see, in all of those cases, those people weren't the saviour. God was the saviour. But yet it says here in Isaiah 62, see, your saviour comes. So who is Isaiah talking about? He's not talking about someone like Moses or Gideon or Samson or King David or someone like them who God is working through. No, Isaiah is talking about God coming himself. See, your saviour comes. He is talking about God. You see, there is still a battle to be won. There is still a saviour needed, a salvation to be won. But it's not going to be someone just like Moses or or King David. There is still a battle to be had, and God is the one to do it. You see, as great as those people were... The salvation that, that God worked through them wasn't enough. It, it alleviated God's people from slavery for a while, but every time it was still a pointer to a greater salvation still to come. It's a little bit like treating um, the symptoms of, of an illness, where actually what you need to do is get down and deal with the root cause itself. And that is what God is promising to do by coming as a saviour to his people, to deal with the root cause once and for all. That's what God's salvation is like. He's not concerned with just fixing the things on the outside, our our, our feelings or, or problems. God wants to deal with the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. You see, God's plan goes beyond just sending someone to do the work for him. You see, God is the only one qualified and the only one able to do it himself. And being our savior involves him having to come into this world personally to deal with the root of the problem, to deal with our sin, to deal with our sinful hearts. So that's the first thing that this prophecy picks up on the idea that God will come to his people as saviour. And when we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, it is fulfilling that scripture. To daughter Zion, see, your saviour comes. But there's another prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 11. And this is what it says. Verse 9, see, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. But we also see something, if we keep on reading in verse 11, it says this, Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pits. Now, what is going on there? Well, that is all part of one prophecy. It's talking about what this saviour, this king, is going to come and do for his people. You see, we read through this, and as we will see and think about next Friday, on Good Friday... Yes, this king has come to do battle as saviour, but this king has also come to die. Zechariah is talking about someone who will personally deal with the consequences of humanity's rebellion. That's what we see in verse 9. God's king lowly and riding on a donkey, your king comes to you. But we also think about the effect that that will have on us. And I really want us to, if we don't go away with anything else today, think about what God's coming king means for us in this situation. Now, let me just explain briefly some of the language going on there. It talks about because of the blood of my covenant. Well, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is like a contract, but more. A covenant is the word that God uses for his relationship with his people, where he promises that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's why we use covenant um, as we talk about a marriage. It's an unbreakable bond between two people. But God's covenant with his people is extra special. You see, you can't break a covenant. Or if you were to, the consequences are incredibly serious. We're going to be thinking about, um, in our evening services in a few weeks' time, uh, the early chapters of Genesis, where we we see God entering into a covenant with his people. And the consequences for breaking the covenant are shed blood. But while we can trust God to keep up his end of the covenant deal, we can't trust our own ability to do the same. But Zechariah in this prophecy, he's talking about the blood of my covenant with you. He's not talking about our blood. He's talking about his You see, this king is going to shed his own blood to keep that covenant, to keep that promise that God will be faithful to his people forever. That is how much God loves his people. That is how committed he is to that relationship, that he is even willing to shed his own blood to keep it forever. You see, the effect on us, And we think about how relevant is Palm Sunday to us, how relevant is Easter to us. Well, King Jesus is willing to go to these lengths because of how serious the situation is for us. And think about the the, the opposite, to not living with King Jesus, not being secure in that covenant. Well, Well, look how Zechariah describes it. He describes life without God as being like prisoners in a waterless pit, this is a really bleak picture. Um, I remember being on holiday a few years back, and we were looking around a castle. And in this castle, they discovered something called an oubliette, which, uh, which is a French word that means forgotten. And it's a particularly horrible way to spend any amount in existence. Basically, you are either thrown down into this deep well, this dry, waterless pit, and you are left there either to die or, or to go mad. And that is the kind of picture that Zechariah is using of what it means to be estranged from God. It is like living in a waterless pit. It is like being in an oubliette, as if you're forgotten. And you see with an oubliette, just like the case about this waterless pit, there is only one way out. It is only if someone at the top lowers something down or comes down and brings you out. And that is what God's king is promising to do by shedding his own blood to keep that covenant to free us from being prisoners in that waterless pit. You see, there's nothing exciting or good about living in a waterless pit. You don't have to try it to know that that's true. But this is such good news that this king was willing to rescue us, to come down and experience that waterless pit for us so that we don't have to That's why Christians celebrate Easter. And that's why we gather together each week to worship. That's why we meet to pray to God and do things like 24-7. Because he sent his king to bleed and die for us as saviour. You see, the king has come. So finally then, why should we be thinking about this? Well, the Bible says that there is a day when Jesus will return. It says this in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. There is a day when Jesus will return, and based on how we've responded to his invitation, we will either spend eternity with him or apart from him. So we're gonna think about what this passage says about the kind of reactions we might have to this king who will come again. Firstly, think about our actions, see whether they show that we are ready and secondly, whether by our words that we understand. So firstly, do our actions show that we are ready? Look at verse eight. It describes a very large crowd that spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's why we call this Palm Sunday. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem, people threw down their coats in front of him. They cut branches, probably palm branches from the trees, and waved them like they were waving flags. You've got this, this, almost this red carpet of coats down for Jesus to trample over with his entourage. And these people waving these palm branches as if waving flags for this coming king. And we get the picture that this is a mixed crowd. As we read on later on, some of the people don't know who this is. Some of them have slightly confused ideas about who this king is and what he was coming to do. Perhaps some of them had heard of of Jesus' healing. In John's gospel, this comes immediately after Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and how that affected the people who experienced that. But we've got to think, actually, that things changed quite quickly in the course of that Easter week, didn't they? You see, being part of the crowd that gets excited about this king is no guarantee that we actually understand who he is. It's only when you see the cross and the empty tomb do you see the kind of king that he is. That this king is willing to go to the cross to save us. Only when we understand that will our our palm leaf waving mean anything. Will our worship mean anything if we understand the kind of king that Jesus is. But there's another thing here. Knowing that the king is coming again can either fill us full of dread and think, oh no, am I going to be ready? Am I going to be ready? Or it can be the most amazing encouragement to Christians. And I've experienced that this week at a few moments. You see, this king will come again. And if you are trusting him, then you need to remember this. Whatever happens, hold on. The king is coming. If life seems to be falling down around you, hold on. The king is coming. If you are facing temptation or or life just feels rubbish at the moment, hold on. The king is coming. Hold on to him. Because he is coming again. So firstly, do our actions show that we are ready? Are we living our lives with that expectation That like being in a battleground, waiting for reinforcements, we know that help is coming. We know that King Jesus is coming. Lastly then, do our words that we use with other people show that we understand? Have a look at verse 9. It says, The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now the word Hosanna means... Save us or God save us. But by Jesus' day, it was used more like a kind of a cheer or, or a shout of celebration. It had lost some of its pungency, of its meaning. You see, the truth of what these people were saying had had actually been lost on them. How much they, how much we need saving. When we say or sing hallelujah or, or say it, remember what it means. It is a cry of desperation, God, save us, save your people. But we stand the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, don't we? We can say that God has saved his people. We can, we can shout that not whether we know or not whether, whether God is going to live up to his promises, but because he has because he has proved it through King Jesus. We can say hallelujah. We can say hosanna. God save us with confidence. And then we see verses 10 and 11 as we, as we finish up this passage. And this is where we end up. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked him, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The people are asking who this is. Some of them had heard about the the noise that he had been making, maybe some of the stories about what he had done. But isn't it fascinating that as the week unfolds, we see the people turning. They're not calling him the king anymore. You see that voice of Hosanna instead is crowded out by the louder voice that becomes crucify him, crucify him. But that was this king's purpose all along. I just want to leave you with one picture to to help us remember the kind of king that Jesus is and why he came to his people. It's a picture of a donkey. If you look on the back of most donkeys, there is this shape, it's a cross. I don't know, I don't think it's there by accident. Perhaps there's another reason why it's there. But I think it's, it's a helpful image any time we see a donkey to remember who carried the king of kings into that city where he would die and how he would die. And actually there's a similarity between the donkey and the cross. You see, the donkey looked like weakness. A much better animal would have been a great big war horse. But that is how God chose to show the kind of king that he is. But also in the same way, the cross looked like defeat. It looked like weakness. But that is how God would save his people, by shedding his blood to keep that relationship with his people. We see that the donkey shows this king's humility. And the cross was not a place of defeat, but a place of victory. And it's that victory that we look forward to this week, as we think about good friday and we think about the empty tomb on easter sunday because that tells us and it tells the world what this king has done so let's pray that as we approach good friday and easter sunday we would remember god's king sent to rescue us what he is like and what that means for us so let's pray Dear Father, we thank you that you sent King Jesus into the world. We thank you for the kind of king that he is like. We thank you that he is our savior and that he bled in our place so that we would not stay in the waterless pit. Lord, help us to enter into this season with great gratitude so we can say, Hosanna, God save us with confidence in our hearts knowing that you have saved us and you will save us. Lord, help us to enter into Easter and
0: worship the King Jesus this week and forever. Amen.